0: It is so good to be here with you all today, um, and also a bit nerve wracking (laughs) but here we are. For those of you I haven't met yet, my name is Emmy. I started coming to Missio Dei mid-summer-ish, and this quickly kind of became another home for me in the city. I moved here about a year ago after going to seminary in California, and I work as a chaplain in a hospital here. And that concludes my elevator pitch about me because I'm really excited to be able to talk to you about Rahab this morning. But before we get started, I'd like to pray. Holy God, I thank you for the gift of this new day, and I give thanks for the opportunity we have to gather together, to listen and to learn, whether in person or through a screen, As we encounter your word today, I pray that we would come to know you more as our hope, our true hope, and our salvation. Amen. I think I need to start with a a short confession. Uh, This is the place for it, right? Anyways, um, I was not super excited to preach about Rahab. I grew up in the church and I learned her story in Sunday school a million times and I heard a number of sermons. And she's always, well, it's a complicated story, but she's always seemed to be characterized as this wayward, lost soul caught up in her evil ways until she's rescued by the spies who essentially deliver kind of the gospel to her, minus Jesus, because he wasn't earthside yet. And the sermon title was often something along the lines of Rahab the harlot or the whore redeemed usually about how God can save even the worst of sinners, even someone like Rahab, a Canaanite, pagan, and prostitute. I came across a fair few of these sermons in my research, too. And yeah, like, this isn't untrue. God can save any of us. It just hits me wrong. It paints Rahab as kind of a very passive, kind of clueless, kind of bad character. And it makes the story all about salvation, specifically Rahab's, which is a big part of the story, but it's not all of it. But that characterization of Rahab has unfortunately stuck with me for many years. So I came to the scripture this week with a lot of assumptions and not a lot of excitement. And really I should know better by now because I'm always surprised. Uh, And this week, lo and behold, Her story surprised me. It's a story about loyalty and hope, just as much as it's about salvation. And the Rahab I met in the text surprised me. So today I'd like to introduce or reintroduce you to Rahab of Jericho. And for all of you highly organized people out there, you're in luck, kind of, I have an outline. Kind of. I do not, however, have slides for you because I am not a highly organized person, nor am I a slides person. Uh, I admire all of you, I do my best. Uh, Good news, this outline is very simple. (laughs) We're gonna get some context and talk about Jericho, then we're gonna talk about Rahab, then we're gonna talk about the other characters, mostly men, and then we're gonna talk about God. That's that's it, that's the outline, cool? Okay, cool. All right, context. Here are some fun facts about Jericho. You may already know, but I found this quite interesting. The walls of Jericho aren't just famous because of the Bible story. They're also an internationally recognized archeological wonder, mouthful. It's the oldest known protective wall around a city in the entire world. Built before we thought we could do that. Actually, most researchers agree that Jericho is the oldest city in the world. And not only that, Jericho is the oldest continuously inhabited settlement in all human history. Back to the foraging Stone Age or something, people, details escape me, but way before it was even a city, it was really important. And Jericho only became more of a big deal over the centuries. The location was prime real estate, Situated along the Jordan River, close to a lucrative trading route and fruitful farmlands. And by the time the Israelites came around, it was also the doorway into Canaan, to the promised land. So Jericho was the first city on the list for the Israelites after they crossed the Jordan. But it was not the first city they attacked on their way there. In the text, we hear Rahab recounting the conquests of Israel over the kings of the Amorites, over Sihon, over Og, Og. And at this point, the reputation of the Israelites far precedes them. It's likely that the people from those conquered cities had fled to Jericho for protection, ahead of the Israelite army, bringing the stories with them, assuming or hoping that the city wouldn't fall. Jericho sees the Israelites coming, though like a storm on the horizon, and they are terrified. Everyone in Jericho had some reason to be hopeful in those walls. In Joshua's day, Jericho was surrounded by two walls, both upwards of 30 feet high. The outer wall was six feet thick, and the inner wall was 12 feet thick. And then between those two walls, there was a space of 12 to 15 feet. This space was covered over and houses were built in the gap. And this is where we think Rahab probably lived. The city itself was essentially impenetrable by the standards of the day. Little risky for the people living in the walls, but. And this is part of the reason why the walls, quite literally the margins of the city, were the place where the marginalized people often lived. The people considered less important to society lived in the riskier, more exposed parts of the city. And Rahab is part of that group. As Tiana brought up last week, women in the ancient world were almost entirely dependent on the goodwill of the men in their life, their fathers, husbands, and or sons. And Rahab, apparently, has the protection of no moral men. Which is kind of odd, because when she makes her petition to the spies to save her and her family, she asks them to spare her father and her mother, her brothers and her sisters. So she has a father and brothers, but she cannot rely on them for whatever reason. As we'll see, they do come to rely on her. In the meantime, though, she works as a prostitute. In the ancient world, there were two forms of prostitution, religious or cult prostitution and ordinary prostitution. Generally speaking, cult prostitutes, both male and female, belonged to a relatively high social class. They were fairly respected, they worked in the service of a god, after all. Ordinary prostitutes, however, those working just for a living, those prostitutes were considered low class, They were more openly shunned and ostracized by polite society, but they were a mainstay in social and economic life. I can think of three ways that Rahab might have come into this job. One, she wanted it, rebelled, ran away from home. Unlikely, but possible. It's a theory that comes up more often than you might expect. Two, potentially, she was orphaned and needed a job. We've kind of ruled this out, this can't be the case for her. We know she had a family, although it was very common for other girls in that situation. Three, her family may have sold her into prostitution. This could have happened if her family was very, very poor, desperate for money. And again, this is speculation, we don't know. But this does seem to be like the most likely option. And it's an important contrast, I think, to the picture of the sex-addicted harlot, miraculously healed and redeemed by God, that comes up surprisingly often in the history of interpretation for Rahab. So, Rahab is making a living in the walls of Jericho when two Israelite spies enter her house. There are some rabbinical traditions that say that Rahab probably ran an inn a hotel of sorts for travelers, and it was not uncommon for an inn and a brothel to exist in one building. The text also tells us that she is drying stalks of flax on the roof, enough to cover two men inconspicuously, two adult men. And that's kind of a lot of flax when you think about it, way more than she probably needed for herself. So this could have been a side gig of sorts for her, another way for her to supplement her income, virtuously. These details suggest that Rahab is a bit of a businesswoman. She's smart. She's no stranger to making bargains and hustling to take care of herself. She also undoubtedly comes into contact with lots of strangers, lots of travelers. She hears a lot, she sees a lot, and she must notice something off about the two Israelite spies because they apparently do not share anything about their mission with her. Maybe some hints by accident, but when the king comes, she knows immediately he's there for them, and she urges them to hide on the roof. And when the king leaves, she reveals what she knows, saying, I know the Lord has given you the land, and that dread of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. We have heard of your conquests, what your God has done. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no courage left in any of us because of you. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven and on earth below. This, I think, is a pivot point in Rahab's story. With that proclamation, a confession of faith, really, Rahab stops identifying herself as part of the people of Jericho, people who believe in many gods, all gods. She confesses belief instead in the God of Israel. Her loyalties now lie with the Lord. And she decides to petition the spies for the safety of her family in God's name. And logically, she probably should have leveraged her information for money from the king. She could have taken her family, run to another city, another place that could have been culturally and socially like Jericho. But no, she casts her lot with the Israelites, the nomadic, warlike, completely foreign people to her. What made her willing to lie to her king for them? What made her willing to honestly betray her own people? I think there was just something about the God of the Israelites that just drew her in. And maybe it was God's conquering power, but I'm inclined to believe she saw past that to God's faithful protection of and provision for God's people. And she wanted to be part of that. And the spies were her way in. And the spies are kind of an interesting part of this story, actually, mostly for their almost complete lack of interestingness at all. Like, they're spies. They're usually the heroes of the story, or at least the ones in the middle of the action. But here, they're passive characters. They don't do much. They don't even have names. A later tradition suggests that one of the spies is Salman who later becomes Rahab's husband and the father of Boaz, but neither of the spies are named in this chapter or in the book of Joshua. Also, it almost sounds like walking into Jericho and staying at Rahab's was the sum total of what they did on their mission. They were sent from the Israelite camp at Shittim, they went to Jericho, they spent the night, and then the king found out. That's not a lot of time. There is... An undercurrent of sexual innuendo here that scholars point out. They spent the night at the house of a prostitute. And this is intentional and it stands in sharp contrast to what happened at the camp at Shittim. The story is recorded in Numbers 25. The men of Israel began to have sexual relations with the women of Moab who invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. The people of Israel were disloyal to the Lord, and the Lord's anger was kindled against them. But here, in this story with Rahab, whether or not there were relations involved, Rahab's loyalty is the one that changes. The spies remain faithful to God and to their people. I actually wonder if what happened at Shittim spooked them a little. The Israelites apparently had no problem getting involved with the Moabites despite the potential consequences, but the spies afterwards are much more cautious about letting Rahab in. They make a very conditional oath with her, giving themselves lots of outs. They are released from her oath to protect her and her family if Rahab says anything to anyone about their business, which probably made it a bit difficult for her to explain to her family why they all had to stay in her house uh, in the walls on the front line during a siege. But, And two, they're released from their oath if she does not display a crimson cord in her window. Three, they're released from their oath if any of her family is found outside of the house during the battle. They have no, no, they don't have to protect them. But Rahab agrees to these conditions, she's ready to do whatever it takes to save herself, her family, and to prove her loyalty. So the spies leave Rahab with this new oath between them, and they hide in the hill country. And maybe they did more scouting when they were hiding, we don't know. But it seems to me that one day and one night in Jericho is not a lot of time to view the land like Joshua commands them to. Luckily, they were staying with Rahab. She told them what they needed to know. As soon as we heard of your victories, our hearts melted, and there was no courage left in any of us because of you. They repeat, the spies repeat that almost exact sentiment to Joshua when they report on their mission. They were also staying at an inn slash brothel, ideal place for gossip. My guess is that they learned plenty from the rumors floating around the bar there, too. They unwittingly, perhaps, became part of that rumor mill because the king found out they were there. And remember, this is no unsuspecting village. This is a city that's constantly fortified for war. The king apparently has eyes and ears everywhere. Rahab could be known to the king. He might be keeping tabs on her somewhere. But either way, the king hears about the spies and tracks them down to Rahab's house. And the king commands Rahab to give them up. He tells her, I know they're there. Bring them out, for they have come only to search out the whole land. Short kind of weird tangent. You know the movie Shrek and the quote, ogres are like onions? (laughs) And then Shrek is trying to explain and gets mad at Donkey and he's like, they have layers. This is relevant only because I think this is a bit of an onion phrase. There's a lot of layers to it. When the king says, they have come only to search out the whole land, I think he's really saying, these foreigners have only come to steal from us, to threaten our home. They are our enemies. They are not here for you. They are not here to do any good. Give them up for the good of your own people, your city. Plenty of us versus them rhetoric rolled into that. But the king doesn't have to say any of that. Rahab knows how to read between the lines. She knows what's at stake. And and he assumes that she is still loyal. So he doesn't have to say any of that. He's still not above threatening her a little bit anyways, coming to her home, forcing his way in and searching it at least enough that she needs to hide the spies on the roof. They're not safe in the home. The king also seems to assume that this revelation that the two men are spies is news to Rahab, as if she didn't know, as if all she is good for is providing sexual favors. He overlooks her intellect, her drive to survive and protect her family. And she uses his assumptions to her advantage. Last week, we saw how Tamar allowed herself to be seen as a prostitute to bring justice to herself and her line, albeit in a roundabout way. And Rahab does the same, although she really is a prostitute. The assumption that the spies were just there to sleep with her is a good alibi for her. She can plausibly claim that she doesn't know anything. And the king believes her because he underestimates her. So, what made her willing to lie to her king for them? What made her willing to betray her own people? Partly, certainly, what she knew of Israel and their God. And partly, probably, the treatment she received as a person at the margins of Israel, of Jericho. But Rahab's motivation, her main motivation, is not spite. There's no indication in the text that she betrays the king to get him back for threatening and overlooking her. Overlooking her, She's not trying to punish the city that has wronged her, that has failed to protect her. Her motivation is to save her family because she knows that what the Lord ordained will come to pass. Jericho will fall. What she does is quite an act of faith and quite selfless. She chooses to petition the spies for the safety of her family, family that seems to have abandoned her, whether in cold blood or out of necessity. She asks this of the spies, give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them, deliver our lives from death. She knows that salvation comes from God alone, and she has the courage to seek after that salvation. Oddly, God seems kind of absent in this chapter. The Lord is mentioned by Rahab in her proclamation, confession of faith, and is not mentioned by the spies at all, really, until they return and are talking to Joshua. Rahab receives no special revelation of the holiness of the Lord. She seems not to even have been evangelized by God's own people. God, it seems, comes to her more quietly in whispers, in rumors, in promises, and in hope. God is in the crimson cord that she hangs from her window a cord reminiscent of the red blood of the lambs spread over the doors of the Israelite homes in Egypt at the first Passover, a sign of protection so the angel of death would pass over their families and spare them. It is a sign to the Israelites too of the side that she has chosen, where her loyalties lie, and that God has chosen her. It is a sign of the hope she has in the God of the Israelites, in the Lord of heaven and of earth. Rahab was a person of deep hope, a person of courageous hope. She had very little assurance that what she hoped for would come to pass, but she had inexplicable faith even so. She was somehow able to see past the ferocious, uncompromising God of Israel that leveled cities and made hearts melt in fear. She saw past that to the God that loves his people, protects them, makes a way for them. And she wanted to be part of that people. She wanted to belong to that God. That hope fuels her change in loyalty because hope really is at the root of loyalty, of all loyalties, of all faithfulness. And God rewards her faithfulness, saving her and her family and giving them a home with his people. Later in the book, Rahab is honored as the head of her family and later in scripture, we learn that she becomes an ancestor of Jesus. Because she chose the true king, she was chosen to build the kingdom. Her loyalty is rewarded, and her hope is made real. And we are in season of Advent right now, season of anticipation, a season of hope, a season of seeing that things are not quite right, but they could be, and they will be, Advent is a time that asks us to pause, to reevaluate our priorities, our hopes, our loyalties. And through the lens of Rahab's story, I think, I think it asks us these questions. What do you really hope for? And what does that hope make you loyal to? Is it a hope that draws you to God? that strengthens your loyalty to the God of heaven and of earth? I'll tell you what I hope for, or at least what I want to hope for. Sometimes hope takes a little work, a little practice, because it's hard, especially in this hectic holiday season, and especially in the mess of our world right now. It's a hope that I don't always feel successful at holding, a hope that sometimes gets lost in the distractions of my day or overshadowed by the suffering that I see in my work. But this is a hope that is an anchor for my soul, an anchor for all of our souls. Because somehow, through it all, God is still with us, protecting us, making a way for us, This is a hope that our good, loving, powerful God has not abandoned this world but is working to restore it. And it is a hope that is already real because Jesus took on human form and walked this life with us. So take hope, friends. Be strong and courageous. Hope in the Lord, for he is mighty and faithful to save.